Good morning. I have a little trouble with this. Hold on. <laughs> All right. Well, it's not working. So basically what I was going to play is the Mission Impossible theme song. And along with that, I'm going to say, Timothy, your mission, should you choose to accept it, you must go to the town of Ephesus. The church there is suffering from false teaching. Command them that they do the things which I write to you in this letter. Command them to do everything Beware, you will face constant persecution from an invisible enemy. Some of those people may oppose you and the things you say. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Grace be with you. As you can see, in this, uh, if you haven't watched the movie Mission Impossible, it's about undercover agents who were given missions that were almost impossible, nearly impossible to, to complete. And... Um, it's very likely that Timothy felt this exact same way. As we read in the Bible, Timothy took on this mission at the church of Ephesus. Paul knew this wouldn't be an easy task, and he repeatedly encourages him throughout the letter. Now let's talk about Timothy. Timothy grew up in a family with a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Paul knew Timothy through his grandmother and his mother. And found in Acts chapter 16, we learn in Second Timothy, Second Timothy 1, that Timothy's grandmother Lois and mother Eunice were both believers. And when Paul returned from Lystra, he found Timothy there with a group of believers who told him about and spoke well of Timothy at Iconium and Lystra. And at this point, from this point on, I believe that Timothy joined Paul in his ministry. We find in um, a couple of the, the books that, Timothy, that Paul writes in Colossians and Philippians and Thessalonians and Philemon that it is very likely that Paul had Timothy with him and was working with him at that time. All right, now open, to your, open your Bibles to chapter 1 of verse Timothy. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of our Savior and Jesus Christ, and Christ Jesus, our hope. Let me ask you guys a question this morning. What is an apostle? A lot of times we read the Bible and we just skip over key things like that and we don't really try to understand what that means. But actually that is really very, very important on understanding the rest of the book of Timothy. An apostle... Um, in First in Corinthians, Paul says that he is called to be an apostle. And then in Galatians, we find out that Timothy was, that Paul was not apostle from men, neither through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. But what does that mean, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? We know that the twelve disciples were also called the twelve apostles. But really, what is an apostle? Basically, an apostle is someone who is sent out, and usually someone is sent out with a message. Since Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, we know that the message was ultimately from the Lord. It's not something that Paul just randomly thought up on his own, but it's actually truly authentic and genuine because it's God's word. 
because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, it gives Paul the authority to tell Timothy how to conduct and put the church in order at Ephesus. Throughout this letter, Paul gives commandments directed at the church and to Timothy personally. In verse 3 it says, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That's Paul's first command to Timothy. Paul's doctrine and teaching were not to be taught. Also in verse 4, Paul says, Do not give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Timothy was instructed to go to the believers in Ephesus and tell them that they teach no other doctrine and that they stay away from fables and endless genealogies. Now, what were those fables and endless genealogies? What were they? Well, today we have something similar to that. I'll give you an example. The Mormon church, they spent a whole lot of time um, tracing the genealogy of their ancestors or their cousins and just it's endless and it's pointless. And what Paul is saying is that it's not important and it's causing confusion. It's a, he says that it's producing the exact opposite of godly edification. In verse 6, Paul says that some have gone astray becoming teachers of the law. They're preaching and talking about things they don't even understand. So the question comes up later on in a verse, um, verse 8 and 9. He says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Let's stop there. Those who are, those who are saved are no longer under the law. They do not lead the law to live a holy life. Believers live a holy life as an act of gratitude to the Savior who saved them from being under the law. The purpose of the law is mainly to to condemn. That's all it can do. Paul is saying, though, that the law is still good. Without the law, we wouldn't know that stealing is wrong, that lying, cheating, murdering, the law points that stuff out. Paul then goes on to list those who fall under the con- condemnation of the law. He says the profane, the liars, the cheaters, blasphemers, murderers, manslayers, fornicators, the, li- the list goes on and on. You know, a while ago, our church um, at the Zucchini Festival, we did a good test. And we did um, what that basically is, is we went through the Ten Commandments and we asked people questions. Have you ever murdered? Have you ever, li- have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? As we go through the list, they see more and more, they see, they see more and more uncomfortable. It's because the law is not, cannot save them. It can only tell them that they are sinners and they need a savior. In verse 12 and 13, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Paul then talks about his former life when he was persecuting the Christian church. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
As I said over and over again, the law was meant to condemn. Even though Paul, even though Paul was a persecutor and an insolent man, Paul received mercy and grace from the Lord, and that's something the law cannot do. That's what Paul is saying here. Later on, in um, the, near the end of the chapter, verse 18, he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. What charge is he talking about? He's talking about the charge that he gave to him in verse 3 and 5, that he rebuke the teachers, the false teachers, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul realizes that this is a huge task, it's a monstrous task that it's almost a seemingly impossible mission. And Paul realizes that. And he reminds Timothy that he was called by God to do this. And he does that so that he would, be, he would not be discouraged, but encouraged to wage the good warfare. Next, Paul goes on the subject of prayer. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore I exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We as believers have an awesome privilege and a tremendous opportunity to communicate directly with God. And we have, an, we have an instant communication with God that no other human has. And then Paul goes on and says, gives us a few reasons why we should pray. He says, first of all, we should pray for our leaders so that we're not living in a country that's in complete chaos. We can see the other countries around in the East, they're living in such, they're living wars and strife. It's not, it's not a fun life. And that's why we need to pray for our leaders. It also, another reason is that it's good and acceptable before God. It also says that it is God's desire to see all men saved. Next in verse, in verse 5, Timothy, or Paul, goes on a bunny trail and because in the verse 4 he says, is God's desire to see all men saved. And then that triggers something in his mind. He's like, oh wait, i got to say something about salvation. And then he's like, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's a really incredible picture here for man, that there is no way for man, that's us, to come to God except through one mediator, that is Christ Jesus. Really, Paul is emphasizing what he said in verse 4, that it is God's desire to see all men saved. He says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. And that follows that thought. It says, by giving a ransom, by giving himself a ransom, Jesus was paying the price to set another free. And in this case, Jesus died as a ransom for all. Now, in verse 8, he goes back to Timothy Paul goes back to the issue of prayer and he says that he desires to see men praying everywhere. Then he goes on and dresses the women. 
He says women should dress modestly, appropriately, decently, and reasonably. Now Paul's saying, here's how women are supposed to act. In verse 9, it says, In like manner, or likewise, meaning just as Paul has previously said, talked about how the men in the assembly should act, now women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So basically, what he is saying is that your adornment should not be external, which is another way of saying, don't be a woman whose only attraction is how she looks and how she dresses. So does that mean, does that mean that I can't wear, I can't have braided hair, I can't have gold, I can't wear earrings, costly clothing, no more dresses, just jeans. No, that's not what it means. <clears throat> this means, doesn't mean that women cannot dress attractive. There's a huge difference between, between dressing tastefully with modesty and dressing to attract. Paul says that women should adorn themselves with modest clothing. In First Peter, he says, don't be concerned about the outward appearance or the outward beauty, meaning don't spend so much time on making sure everything's perfect, everything's, every hair's in the right place, every hair's picked right, your nails, your, your cuticles are not there anymore, you know? It's not important. In First Peter, he says that you should be known for the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. And men, that should be so precious to us as well. Verse 11, let a man, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in, but to be in silence. Paul again is laying principles for the church at Ephesus. Paul explains in verse 13 that why women should not teach or have authority over man. He says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam wasn't deceived, was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. It's very interesting that even in creation, there is a certain order. Man was created first, then the woman. It was his purpose that men be the head and the wives be submissive to the husband. All right, so if women can't do any of the teaching, and they've got to be silent. Why do we even have women in the church? Well, he explains that. Nevertheless, she will be saved or delivered in childbearing if they, that is her children, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Women can have an enormous impact in the church. The women, the place, their place is in the home and to raise up godly children for the, for the work of the Lord in the church. Timothy is a perfect example of godly parents or godly, godly mother and grandmother raising him in the home. Now chapter 3 talks about the qualifications of the elders and deacons. Now it seems as though there's a change of thought from the last verse we just talked about, childbearing and women. And in the first verse of chapter, one, of chapter 3, but actually, the section does relate to the section before it. 
after Paul has just finished talking about the woman's purpose and ministry in the church, he then talks about elders and deacons being placed in the church. He says a bishop or elder is basically an overseer of a local assembly. It is a position in which the Lord puts a man, puts a desire in a man's heart to take on this important task. The Bible says about aspiring elders that he desires a good work. However, there are certain credentials and qualities that must be there. And God is setting those qualifications for the church, for Ephesus, and also for the church today. Timothy is going to the church. He's going to go into the church of Ephesus and say, all right, you want to be an elder? That's a great thing. But here's what it takes. He's going to list every qualification. There are about four main qualifications forming categories that sum up the qualifications of an elder. The first one involves personal character. An elder must be blameless, meaning that there can't be any accusation against them where they can, where there can be no accusation against an elder that could stick. Also, another personal characteristic involves being temperate, being sober-minded, good behavior, not violent, not greedy, gentle, not quarrelsome, meaning not arguing about every little thing, not covetous. Deacons also have similar qualifications as that. Another, pre, another prerequisite is the witness of the home. He must also be the husband of one wife. An elder must be hospitable, must also be able to rule his own house well, having children in submission. And then Paul brings up an argument saying, if the elder can even rule his own family well, how can he be expected? How can we give him the responsibility to rule the family, to be an overseer, to be ruling over the family of God? Another qualification is that he must have a good testimony among unbelievers. Another key qualification is teaching ability. He must be able to teach and have be able to teach in a setting to others. Lastly, an elder must have experience meaning that it says in, um, it says in uh, I believe verse 15 that not a novice, meaning that it's not to be a new believer. A brand new believer is not qualified to be an elder. The qualifications of deacon are very similar. All right, so you might say, okay, I don't want to be a deacon. I don't want to be an elder. So I don't have to live my life like that. That's not for me. But in reality, the qualifications of elders and deacons should be true of all of us. And for elders and deacons, that must be true. Them. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says, Although I hope to come to see you, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God the pillar and the foundation of the truth. 
the mission continues to grow difficult. Paul may not even make it. That's why Timothy needs to follow what Paul is writing to him so that he knows how to conduct himself as he goes into Ephesus. In chapter 4, Paul talks about how in the future times there will be some who leave the faith and follow after false doctrines. Now, what kind of false doctrines are you talking about? Well, he says in verse 3, the forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul is trying to address the seeds that could lead and will lead to people falling away from the faith and following after false doctrines. The Catholic Church is a perfect example of this, where they forbid priests and popes from marrying. And as a result, we see that many of the popes and priests have turned into pedophiles and perverts. Next, Paul commands Timothy to stay away from old wise fables. Instead of spending a whole lot of time and making them a big deal, Paul just says, don't even bother with them. What's more important is to exercise godliness. That's what's truly profitable. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Paul wants godliness to be part of Timothy's life. If Timothy was to come into our church and preach that stealing was wrong, and then a few hours later go to the marketplace and buy some tunics, he doesn't believe that stealing is wrong. It's by your actions that show what you truly believe. And Paul wants Timothy's actions to back up what he believes. Now in verse 12, he says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy's a young man, and it's probably it's a tendency of many older people to look down on younger believers because of lack of, immature, lack of maturity or maybe lack of experience or just some other reason. I'm sure you've heard the, uh, the phrase, um, act your age. And I'm, heard, I'm pretty sure that um, guys hear that a lot more than ladies do. <laughs> I guess it's just they mature faster than guys. Um, but, and usually when people say, act your age, it's usually to say, grow up, or it's trying to, trying to correct them from doing something like that. But I want to tell you guys today to act your age in a good way. I want to encourage young people here today, including myself, to be an example to other believers. It can be difficult not being treated the same as adults, but if we live our life as Jesus lived his, what can they say? Youth does not matter when you live your life earnestly for Christ. Paul gives us a few areas in which we can act our age. He says that we can be an example in our speech, our actions. We can be an example of love for others and our love for Christ. 
We can also be example by living out our faith and an example in purity. Paul then takes the next three verses of this chapter and encourages Timothy to continue in his walk with the Lord. Now moving on to chapter 5, Paul introduces the role of widows in the church. Chapter 5, verse 3 says, Honor widows who are really widows. Honoring widows really has two meanings. We should give widows respect, and it also means that we should support them with their financial needs. Those who are really widows is key to understanding who is qualified and who is not. First of all, if a widow has children or any grandchildren, they should be the ones that step in and take care of that widow. It is their responsibility throughout their whole life. Their mom has been faithful to them and providing for them. Now it is their turn to show their love for them, back to them. A true widow is one who is alone, without money, and is completely and fully dependent on God for everything. Then he lists, Paul lists a few qualifications that makes, that allows a widow to be eligible for the church to support. A widow must be older than 60. She should be the wife of one man. She must have a reputation for her good works. A widow must also have raised children of her own. And she must show hospitality to strangers and unbelievers. Then he talks about how younger wo- widows are not, should not be counted in the mix because they may become idle. Paul says that younger widows should marry and have kids, else they become busybodies, which means they get involved in other people's business that really isn't theirs to get involved in. And then he also addresses, Paul addresses another type, and that is if there's a believer that knows a widow and their family, then he should also take the burden off of the church. Verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Again, the idea of honor is seen. This time, Paul says that the elders deserve double honor. They deserve the respect, and they also deserve financial support. The reason for this is, by supporting elders financially, it gives them the opportunity to go into the work of the Lord full-time so that they don't have to work so that they can completely be completely focused on his ministry. Next, the next verse, it says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The ox is doing all the work. You should give it some food. You should let it eat the grain that falls on the side of it as it treads out the grain. Another, another example is the labor is worthy of its wages. If you have somebody that's working for you, pay them. Next he talks about that if there's an elder found sinning, then he should be rebuked in front of the whole assembly. When dealing with problems like this, Timothy is told to show no partiality and no prejudice. 
Another command to Timothy is in, found in verse 22. It says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Basically, Timothy is saying not to take somebody in the church and give them a position of leadership too fast. Sometimes that could be the case. That could be a temptation to do. But by doing that, it would cause you to partake in their sin. An extreme example will be giving a position of a new believer that comes into a newcomer to the assembly, that comes into the into the church, and even though it may seem that they be, might be qualified for the position, making a decision without knowing them, knowing their full background, would cause you to share in their sins. Chapter 6 includes instructions on how, to, how servants or slaves should, be treat, should treat their masters. And it also has final words to Timothy and words to the rich. Servants that have non-believing masters might think that it's okay that they could run away from their masters because he says that they should not do this. Slaves should stick with their master and continue to work faithfully and be a testimony to Christ. Slaves that have Christian masters also must show the same respect to them because they might be tempted to, because they are fellow believers, be tempted to think of them as fellow brethren and not as their master, not honor them as a master. Verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and, having food and clothing... With these, we shall be content. There are actually some teachers out there that their whole purpose is to make money. They're using godliness as a form of gain. They don't care about teaching the truth. They don't care about what they're saying. All they care about is their paycheck. Paul says, don't get caught up in these things. Those who are greedy for money are falling into temptations everywhere. He says, that is why Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What kinds of evil has it done? Well, it's caused many to stray from the faith and to pursue money. Paul says to Timothy to flee the love of money, and we should also should flee the love of money. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Paul then encourages Timothy to fight the good faith. Paul's last and final command is directed at the wealthy believers. Rather than in the early rather than first of all, he tells them that not to be haughty or proud. It can be very easy to be puffed up, to be, oh, I've got, I've made all this money, it's, it's what I've done. How come you can't make that kind of money? And to point the finger and to, to boast yourself up. Paul says don't do that. 
He also warns the rich not to trust in uncertain riches because by doing that, you're lessening your trust in God for things. Paul then, Paul would rather have the wealthy be rich in good works than be rich in earthly possessions. It says, ready to give, willing to share. An example may be the poor, the widows, talked about earlier, the elders and the assembly. Now, we come to the last charge to Timothy. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul first wants Timothy to guard what was committed to him. In other words, guard the faith Guard the gospel that's being attacked by the false teachers. Guard it. As mentioned in chapter 1, Timothy must keep an eye out for those false teachers. Even some believers have fallen astray to that false teaching and have gone away from the faith. Back in chapter 4, Paul says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will follow after these false doctrines. Those latter times are now. We are living in a world that is full of false teaching and false doctrine, and they have a stronger influence than ever before. We need to be careful. Just like Timothy, we also have a task or a mission, which is to guard that which was committed to our trust. And in the last times, in the times we live in, this mission will not be easy. But with God on our side, nothing is impossible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this wonderful book written to Timothy, Lord, how we can find so many examples of how we can live our life and how the church today should be should be functioning and should be structured, Lord. Thank you for all these examples, Lord, and for the, the life of Paul and the life of Timothy, Lord, and their devotion to you, Lord. Just pray that as we go out today that we would guard what was committed to our trust, Lord, and that we would watch out for false teaching, Lord. Watch out for false doctrines, Lord. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.